0: This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give the show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. We're going to start going through 1 John. This is a book of the Bible that has brought so much comfort, so much joy, and so much clarity to the church for 2,000 years. We live in a world of tension and uncertainty, to be honest, the world which is set against Christ, which we will read about in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, in a few months, the world desires instability. It feeds off of it because it profits from an ever-shifting narrative. Think about it like this, all right? This is You want a controversial statement here? I'm not as scared at all, right? Talking about uh, the issues of our day. Four or five years ago, they wanted you to think Ukraine was the most corrupt country on the face of the planet. But now they want you to wave their yellow and red, or yellow and blue flag and hate your red, white, and blue one. Instability. See, we see this instability in the, the large macro form, the outside coming into the micro at the individual level. Anxiety and depression are at an all-time high. It seems nearly everything around us is conditioning us to be unstable, to have our feet in quicksand, to be overwhelmed, to be unsure. And this is no shadow, this is reality, for the seeming is true. Two historical examples can help us, as lenses, think through what I'm painting for you this morning, this dystopia. The first is a classic psychoanalytical example Known as Pavlov's dogs, it's ingrained into society. If you don't know it, it goes like this: In this inhumane experiment done uh, some time ago, a researcher surgically resituated the saliva glands of these dogs that he was experimenting on outside their mouth, on the outside. And then, our infamous experiment was simple: Ring a bell, then give the dogs food. Ring a bell, give them food. The dogs quickly became to, uh, conditioned to. Began salivating every time they heard that bell showing signs that they were ready to eat, even if they weren't given food. The second is also a classic account, and honestly, even more sinister. The communist leader Joseph Stalin, the uh, USSR leader in World War II, was asked how he can mistreat his people so badly and then still come to him and still follow him with loyalty. In this account that's given, he, he asked for a live chicken to be brought to him. Stalin then proceeded to hold the chicken down and pluck every feather off of this chicken, the fowl shrieking and clucking in obvious pain. He then sat the chicken on the floor and held out his hand, which contained some bird seed or some food. And the now naked chicken ran right back to his hand to eat from the very hand that had caused him so much pain. See, we live in a world very much like this, and if we are not careful, we will become the dogs. We will hear the bell ring, and instead of salivating for food, we will become anxiety-ridden, depressed, scared, unstable. And if we are not careful, we will have all of these issues arise within us, naked and afraid, and run right back to the very source of that panic as it offers us. Just a handful of delights. Just like your 5 o'clock news runs 18 murder stories with one nice little a girl saved her cat out of a tree story to make you feel better. This anxiety and insecurity and instability, unfortunately, has crept into the church predominantly in the past 200 years. Revivalism of the 1800s gave way to a constant questioning of whether one was really a Christian Now, don't misunderstand me. We all need to take inventory of ourselves to examine and see if we be in the faith as we are told to in 2 Corinthians 13.5. But the revivalism of the 1800s burst what I call faith anxiety. That if you don't feel a certain way, if the lights aren't just right, if you haven't had this great week, then you're probably unsaved. Even if you bear fruit, you're not holy enough. Oh, goodness. You're like the spider on Jonathan Edward's string, who I love, dangling over the pits of hell and the sinners in the hands of an angry God. This faith anxiety gave way to centuries of faithful Christians walking on eggshells with many thinking that if they committed even the slightest sin, that they were now not a Christian anymore. The ringing bell and the bird seed crept into the church Because the American church, mainly at least, was beginning to turn away from devotion to God, devotion to itself, to numbers, to fame, to experience, to power, to influence, and not to power and influence of the Holy Spirit in the life of its parishioners. This ringing bell of uncertainty and instability has caused countless myriads of solid, genuine Christians to fear they do not know the Lord and that God is fickle, an old, senile guy who loses his temper quickly and just wants ice cream all the time. And thus was born the thought of having to rededicate your life every single week and get rebaptized 18 times like the water had some sort of magical infusion in it. Now I ask you, dear listener, is this currently you or has this ever been you? I, I can tell you from experience, I have been here. I have walked through this and it's crippling. What are we to do? We have all this anxiety. It's crept into the church. We have all this instability. What are we to do with this? How do we overcome A world of earthquakes telling us to be unsure of everything and the instability of years of, frankly, false teaching within the church that has caused countless sorrow when there should have been untethered, infinite, unspeakable joy. Do we run to the hand that plucks all the feathers off of us, naked and ashamed? Or shall we run to the hand that clothes us with the sacrifice skin of His own Son, the Lamb of God? Shall we listen to the ringing bell of worldly anxiety and the message of doubt that has wrongly told from the pulpit for the past 200 years or so? Or shall we hear the heavenly chorus of God's Word and His blessed assurance for His people? This is where we thank God that He has spoken and that He has given us a book in His Word, dedicated to all of this. God has given us in His Word a small little book entitled 1 John, or if you're from England, John One, 1 John. It's all about assurance of salvation, joy in God, desire to have fellowship with Him, stability. Stability. It is the most anxiety-relieving book because it was inspired during a time in the early church that looked very much like our own false teaching, and fear-mongering from the top down and on every side. My prayer is that you, with your sin and shortcomings, will be convicted to repentance and sanctification, growing in holiness, more like Jesus as we go through 1 John. That you who are Christians will be challenged by this book, no less, but not to despair and constant questioning and biting your nails, no, but unto holiness, joy, joy, thanksgiving as you were aided by the Holy Spirit and walking in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? For those of you who are not Christians, whether you know it this moment or not, my prayer is that this short book will convict you unto despair, that you see your sin and the holiness of God and that by the grace of God in Christ, through His Spirit, you would turn from your sin And joyfully walk in fellowship with God, restored unto true life on a path averted from hell. 1 John, this is where we're headed. 1 John acts as a self quiz. This is why we're going through it. So, as we go through this short book, I'll be listing and kind of asking and, and prompting these questions that I want you to ask yourself. Be honest with yourself. When we go through these questions, be honest with yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit that he would soften your heart and give you humility on how to answer. See, the questions in this book don't require perfect answers. What I like to call Sunday school answers. We always want to, to put on our Sunday best, come before the Lord, and we think we have to have these perfect answers. Like, well, do you love Jesus? Well, yeah, but, but not the way I should. And I don't do it as much as I sh- I don't have as much affection for him. And uh, I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. What am I going to do? I need to get rebaptized 14 times, do something. Right? No. Do you love him? Yes. I know it's not perfectly because we will not in this lifetime. This book simply requires honest answers not perfect ones. So as we begin, would you turn in your word to 1 John. It's in the back of your Bible. And we will be in 1 John 1, 1 through 4 this morning. That's a lot of ones. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Hear the word of God for you this morning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest as we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, And we are writing these things so that our joy or your joy may be complete. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Would it be a sharp sword to hack away our sin? Those of us that need to be hacked away with our sin. and Would it be a sharp scalpel for us that need some simple surgery? God, would you shine your light into us through your word that we would be able to see in the darkness. Oh God, would you guide us by your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, to breathe out the very scriptures we seek to examine and live our lives by this morning. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to this succinct book in the back of the New Testament, we need to lay down a few historical and literary boundaries. You know, this is how we always start a sermon series, even though... It's not really, we're just going through books, but it's how we always start. We've got to get the background work done, right? So we don't end up in left field. So let's look at some of this real quick, this background, and then we'll get into our text this morning. So the author, we need to think about the author. Although this beloved small book of the New Testament bears the name John, it does so from early church history and from firsthand witness rather than from the book itself. If we think back to Titus, when we were in Titus at the, be- uh, the end of last year, Paul makes it clear that it is he, Paul, who is writing to Titus, right? However, in 1 John, we have no internal indication of, of who the author is. Like, hi, my name's John. I'm a Libra, that kind of stuff, right? It is a bit of a mystery. It's an enigma in a way. However, as we will see later on in the sermon in Throughout the book of 1 John, the style of the letter of 1 John is astoundingly, almost identically similar to the gospel according to John, the fourth gospel, which further backs up the early church's claims that the apostle John wrote this letter. So who was the apostle John? In short, the Apostle John was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of the inner three. He was known as a son of thunder, him and his brother James. It was Peter, James, and John. That was like the inner three of the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles. John ministered in various areas and spent much time ministering in what would become a central hub of the early church, Ephesus. John is credited rightly with five books of the New Testament, the Gospel according to John, And much of this comes from early church history, but not like hundreds of years later in like eighty five hundred. 500, but within a generation. We have testimony from men like Polycarp, one of the very first martyrs of the church, who was a disciple of John, who knew him personally, who verified all of these things for us. So we can be quite confident who wrote the letter, John the Apostle. But who's it to? Who's it to? Well, that's a different story. No one. Scholars, pastors, researchers, nobody. Nobody. Don't care what they say. No one really knows who the original audience was of 1 John. There could have been an attachment on the front of it that says this is who it goes to. We aren't really sure. The 1 John is considered an epistle, which is just fancy language, for a letter, even though it doesn't flow like a letter. This short book actually flows more like the book of James and can be considered a circular letter, meaning it talks about the same themes over and over again, either from different angles or in heightened fashion as it circles back to them. Some think 1 John could be a collection of sermons of John or an anthology of his early teaching. Whatever the case may be, we have no direct address of recipients, only the cryptic address of little children throughout. However, based on church history, again, from men like Polycarp, we can know and conclude that 1 John was a circulatory tract or letter that was sent around to churches, passed around. That's why it's vague. It's open. It's general. It was meant for many churches, not just one church like Titus on Crete. It was circulatory. It was passed around in Asia Minor, the same way that Revelation was passed around from Ephesus to Thyatira to Smyrna, all that stuff right there. Now, whoever the recipients were, the content of the letter is alluded to paradoxically general yet specific. That is a paradox. General yet specific. Here's what I mean by that. It's general and then it addresses these overarching general concerns that all Christians throughout all time will face, yet was specific to the original situation in a way that would not have been vague. This goes to show that the errors, the distractions, the false teaching, and the concerns that the church faces are timeless. They're just merely different faces and different names, but the same old stuff from age to age. Generally, the circular letter of 1 John deals with some major themes that can all be clumped into these three. Correct theological belief. So what you believe about God in accordance with the Scriptures. Correct morality, living out what you say you believe in connection to those Scriptures. And then correct sociability, which is related to morality, but it's living out what you say you believe towards others. Again, these are eternal insights that all Christians in all ages must wrestle with. Some of the content of 1 John gives us insight that there were false teachers wherever this was, most likely around the Ephesus area, and they were breaking up the church and that this false teaching, uh, based on the content of 1 John, was what we would call proto-gnostic, or the first gnostic, before Gnostics. Now, here's your church history lesson. You've already got Polycarp. You can add this to your uh, six shooter this week to impress your friends at work and all that stuff. Gnosticism, Gnosticism was one of the earliest church heresies, and this is what it taught. It's not like this outer veil of Christianity, like oh yeah, the church, but but the true Christianity, the real stuff, was with these special teachers, these false teachers. They had this direct inside knowledge. It was it was basically conspiracy theory stuff, right? Again, same old stuff in age to age. Some of the remarks made by John illuminate that this type of thought was was beginning to spring up in the early church, and we'll see that as we go. And, and as you hear me say early church this morning, I don't mean, again, 500 A.D. I mean like 60 to 90 A.D. within a generation of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, which is the time period in which this letter was written. So it's not only during this time period that persecution is ramping up from hostile Jews, people that, that say, you, you're, you're a cult, you're, you're not the true way, and they begin spreading false Teaching, and then you have people in the church that leave and there's false teaching. And then you have persecution from the Roman government, especially under the reign of Nero in the early 60s. So the topics of apostasy, that means people leaving the church, people changing the gospel of various aspects of the faith to make it more palpable and usable within the persecuting world. Does that sound kind of familiar? Like, you know, the woke gospel, right? Changing these things, doing these things, having a foot in both fields... That's what's going on historically. That's our background. So anytime we start a book, we need to do a little bit of this background work so we don't end up in left field. And if you want to do more research, that's the 30,000-foot overview. Come see me after service. I'll give you some good resources. So with the remainder of our time this morning, I want to quickly examine what is known as the prologue of 1 John, which is 1 John 1, 1 through 4. I'll read it for us again and we are writing these things so that your joy or our joy may be complete. These initial four verses give us insight into John's pastoral heart. You just hear it oozing out of him. It's not straight to the point like, uh, like Galatians or, or even Titus. There's just this pastoral tone of love and care and desire for people to be in truth. Additionally, these initial four verses give us a link Back to the Gospel of John and the very first book of the Bible, which is what? Thank you. One person knows their Bible this morning. Genesis, right? It displays for us this, this verse here, this passage. It displays for us the grand theology of a triune God and His fellowship with His creation. So in verse 1, should sound familiar to us. That which was in the beginning. In the beginning, God created. But also, John 1, I'll make sure I really enunciate where we're at. 1 John and John 1, so we don't get sidetracked. Same person, same chapter of a book, different books, same numbers, okay? 1 John and John 1. Hear what it says in John 1, the gospel according to John. In the beginning, ah, was what? The Word, oh, we've had that in 1 John 1 this morning. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Here we have this link between John 1 and 1 John, further giving credibility that the Apostle John is the author of both. But here in John 1, John 1, John gives the most glorious prologue concerning Jesus in the Gospel according to John That Jesus is eternal, that Jesus is God, yet distinct from the Father and the Spirit, yet equal in power and glory, and that it is this Jesus who is the very word or action of God who created the world and all there is from eternity past. Not only this, not only this, but this eternal second member of the Trinity took on flesh and walked among his creation John 1 14 That all of that is what the season of advent that we just finished celebrating reflects upon the infinite becoming finite in the flesh that the finite would be restored unto the infinite So here in 1st John we have a similar thought to the gospel according to John. The beginning, the beginning and the word of life. The beginning and the word of life. John writes in the second person plural saying we have heard that which we have heard. Why does he do this? Why does he say that which I have heard? That which we have heard. Well, as we will see throughout this letter, see, I just, I just did it too. As we will see throughout this letter, John is writing as a stand-in for all the other apostles and all faithful Christians saying, this is the truth, this is the actual church, this is what we are all to believe and so act. This is it for all of us, the stand-in, the representative. Notice in verse 1 of 1 John, he also makes eyewitness claims for himself and these other apostles and Christians, some of which who very well could have been with him as he was writing this, just as uh, Titus and Timothy and Luke were with Paul on many occasions. So that which we have heard, all right, ears, that which we have seen with our eyes and that which we have touched We've got three senses. This is testimony language, as if John is in court giving his verdict or as if he's giving his testimony on the witness stand. And these three combined senses, well, they should actually remind us of someone that's not John. They should remind us of one of his contemporaries, one of his friends named Didymus the twin, Thomas. In John 20, the gospel according to John, 20 verses 24 through 26, Thomas, one of those 12, declares to the remaining apostles that since he was not with them when the resurrected Christ appeared to them in the upper room, he's not going to believe it. Y'all are all tripping on bad mushrooms. I don't believe it. Stop eating that pizza late at night. He's dead. Thomas has heard their testimony. He wants more. So Jesus comes to Thomas And what happens? Thomas is able to see him. He's able to hear him say, put your hand in my side and look at my hands. And what does Thomas do? He declares, my Lord and my God. Sight, hearing, touch. So here in 1 John, John is 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 saying this. I'm not some random bystander. I did not pick this up off of some sort of like deep Reddit thread. I've seen this. I've heard this. I've touched this with my own hands. The very word of life, the Son of God. Going on to verse 2. This is why in the second verse of 1 John 1, he goes on to use this language of testimony. He's heightening his language. Verse 2 is what is known as a parenthesis. It's a, it's a break in the natural thought and the flow of, of the letter here. If you just took verse 2 out and it was verse 1 and verse 3, it would go together perfectly. It's a natural thought break here. And John speaks about the word of life in verse 1. And then, as to make sure he is perfectly clear and everybody's on the same page, what does he do? He tells us what he means by the word of life, which goes to. Show That the false teachers that he's combating were taking this phrase, word of life, and using it to mean something else. He's clearing up terms. The word of life is not some secret password or secret knowledge like Shibboleth back in Chronicles. Remember that? It's not some secret handshake, right? The word of life is not a code name for a special group. The word of life is this. It goes on to tell what it is. Eternal life, which was with the Father and was revealed to John and those with him. The word of life revealed that he's touched and that he's seen and it's eternal word of life. Okay. It keeps going. this eternal life. All right. So it's just a message, right? This eternal message. No. John isn't being hyperbolic. John's audience, as we should be, Is familiar most likely with his gospel because what does it say in John, the gospel according to John 1 1 through 5? Listen at this and hear the similarity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, is a person. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him, nothing, not anything. Uh, made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Not only do we have the eternal word who is God, but we have the word described not as a thought or a message or a piece of paper, but as a person. He. And it is in him the eternal word of life, that the light of men, true life, is illuminated and found. And this eternal light shines in the darkness, like a giant light bulb drawing those unto it. This is the very thought right here that connects First that connects John and John 1 together, this verse. Actually, it's a single word that connects them together. The word shine. Now, some of you, when I say the word shine, you may be thinking of a clear substance, but that's not what we're talking about. Shine, in the original Greek, is uh, phino and means to see or to appear or to be revealed. So in 1 John 1-2, the word manifest, if you had the ESV, the word manifest Actually, it has the same root, Fino. John is saying in our passage in 1 John this morning, the eternal word of life has appeared, has shown, has been revealed, shining in the darkness, and it is not an it. The eternal word is a he, Jesus Christ, who I have seen and I have touched and I have heard. This is what I'm giving to you. So he goes on, picking up his thought in verse 3. He started in verse 1, after clarifying what and who the word of life is, recapitulating the same sensory words, seen and heard. John says, this eternal second person of the blessed Trinity, who he knows in person, the eternal truth made flesh, this is what we proclaim to you. This is the truth. Don't listen to that garbage and that stuff out there. This is the truth. John urgently and lovingly wants his readers and listeners to know the truth. Why? So they can be eggheads? So they can win Bible trivia night? No. So that you too may have fellowship with us. Oh, so it's just about power and control, right? It's just about that, like it's country club mentality. You're looking out and you're seeing people. There are churches like, man, those people over there, those those Romans over there, look how rich they are, man, I wish that they would be on our team. Let's just go try to get them. No, of course not. That's modern thought. It's not John's. He clarifies us to have no misunderstanding what he means by all of this. This fellowship isn't mere gathering together. Like we, we throw the, the term fellowship on everything. Fellowship meal, which is good. We need that. But it's not just gathering together. Fellowship, fellowship is pure reconciliation and redemption. Being restored back to the garden where God and man dwelt together, fellowshipping together. And all of this is based in the fellowship that the Godhead has within himself the Father and the Son and the Spirit in perfect harmony and unity together. So why is John writing all this? Well, he gives us his his thesis statement like a good PhD student right up front. Is is John writing this because he wants to give you some hypotheticals to think about? No. Verse 4, so that there may be joy... Completed. Now, you've, you've heard me when I was reading this the first two times say our, your. Because the word our and your, in the Greek, they're almost identical in how they're spelled. And so some translators take our joy. Some have taken your joy. Either option is completely fine because they're conveying the same message, the same heart, which is directed towards us. John, as a pastor, wants his joy completed, which I want and which you should want, that all would rightly know the very word that he knows, to have fellowship, restoration with God, pure joy, the joy in this letter that we have in the truth of God. This is our joy together, our fellowshipping joy, and this is your joy that you have as you fellowship with God on your own. This is why we write to you. See, this is what I love about 1 John. He's straight to the point. He essentially says, I want you to have the same fellowship with God that I and the other apostles have, which is fellowship found in eternity. Not in an upper room in Ephesus somewhere. Not somewhere in Galilee. Eternity. So how do we apply this to ourselves this morning? What do we do with this prologue? There's not really a question here for us to examine, is there? Well, there isn't on the surface, but of course behind it there always is if we're good Bible readers. And here's the question that I posit for you this morning. Do you have fellowship with God, which gives way to fellowship with fellow Christians? Do you have fellowship with God, which gives way to fellowship with fellow Christians? The word fellowship, koinonia, is a major topic throughout 1 John. Indicating that the false teachers John is correcting, they were teaching that you could have, my goodness, are we sure that this was this long ago, 2,000 years? Let me just say this. They're teaching that you can just have your private faith with God and not have to live it out with other people. Does that sound like the politics of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s? Your private faith. It's what you do at your house, but when you're out in public, or when we do policy, you leave that stuff behind. So if this is such an important theme, fellowship, and the question we have today comes from this verse and this word of fellowship, then we need to ask a clarifying question. As if John, here's my parentheses, breaking off. What is fellowship? What's fellowship? Is it just a name that we see on a bunch of church signs? Fellowship this church of that, fellowship assembly of blah, fellowship here, fellowship that. What is it? Fellowship is loving, mutual, right relationship between two or more people. It's being close. It's being not far off. It is participation with one another. More specifically, fellowship can be seen as this. This comes from, from the Arab's Bible Dictionary. I think it's perfect. Fellowship is this. The communion or common faith experiences and expressions shared by the family of believers as well as the intimate relationship they have with God. It's all intertwined. So this morning I ask you, are you in fellowship with God? True fellowship with Him? Are you in right relation with Him? Have you cried out to Him for forgiveness of sin and shame? Do you desire to hear from Him in His Word? Do you desire to symbolically live out this fellowship with God with other Christians? You must. There's no asterisk, clause B, but if you don't feel like it, you don't have to. Or you don't know what I've been through or COVID, or whatever. I like live streams and my cereal and PJs better. No, you have to. It's a requirement. It is from the heart of the Lord. For you are not meant to live alone. To be alone is to be in darkness, which is punishment from God. Outer darkness. Not being able to see. Have you ever been on like a cave tour Or in a room that is so black that you can't even see your face in front of you. That is the outer darkness. And you will have no idea who's around you. It is alone. Pure, solitary confinement. And that is not a gift. That is a punishment. Fellowship language. Fellowship language of your life. That is what we are to be living out and pronouncing. See, throughout the rest of 1 John, you'll hear John say this. Abide in Christ as he abides in you. And we don't use that word abide at all anymore. It's a word that simply means to remain in. So if the eternal word of God is Jesus Christ, and he has always and ever will be in right relation, in fellowship, right standing, joyful, living with the Father, then to abide in Christ means that we too are in that perfect relationship and blessed Fellowship, this right here, that is eternal life. Eternal life doesn't start when you're dead. Eternal life starts right now and is seen in a small scale form of fellowship with one another. That is a precursor of eternity. The church symbolizes, shows forth heaven unveiled, his kingdom come. That's why we say it so much here. Because that's what it is. So how do we do this? How do we have fellowship? It's not just from 1 John as if he's the only witness to this. God has spoken to us a fuller testimony from Genesis to Revelation. All of it is pointing to this grand theme of fellowship of God and man and man and man restored. You can't have one without the other. What do you think those blessed Ten Commandments are all about in Exodus 20? A list of rules that you hang up at grandma's house? No, they're guidelines for fellowship. The first four have to do with right right relationship and fellowship with God, and the remaining others have all to do with humans, with fellow man. And what does James say? If you break one of them, you break them all. Because to be in fellowship with God is to be truly in fellowship with man and vice versa if we are in fellowship with him. See, this fellowship gives way to a gift of God. It's not just, okay, well, we're in fellowship. All right, cool. No, no, no. It's not the dystopia of 1984 of where everybody's wearing their gray suits and eating their oatmeal and they all have shaved heads and look alike. Okay, we're in fellowship together. We're all here. No. What does it give way to? What does John end this this prologue with? It gives way to pure, completed, stable, unwavering, steadfast, unanxiety-ridden, confident, strong, joy. Joy. The joy of your life comes to fruition by being in fellowship with God and fellow Christians. Joy is stable. Joy is secure. Joy is unwavering because joy is from the Lord and in the Lord. And that's why Paul lists joy as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 or as a byproduct of someone who is in fellowship with God. Joy in fellowship. So this morning... Examine your heart. Are you in true fellowship with God? Maybe you believe all the right things, but you believe you can simply believe those things and not live them out. That fellowship is personal. I have fellowship with God. I don't need the rest of that. That's not fellowship. Do you know what that is? That's foolishness. That's not my opinion. Proverbs 18, 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Are you in fellowship with only man? Are you seeking community within the church, friends, camaraderie, without first seeking the restoration from and fellowship of God in Christ? So if this be you, then you are like the man who snuck into the wedding feast thinking he could partake of all the good stuff on his terms in a parable that Jesus told in Matthew twenty-two twelve. 12, Hearing the father reply this, the king, the father says this, friend, how did you get in here with that wedding garment? And he was speechless. Don't deceive yourself. But if this is not you, and you say, no, I have fellowship with God, and I have fellowship with man, and it's not perfect, but I desire for it to be, then you know what? Fellowship never has this look I'm in fellowship. Big frown all the time. Doesn't mean that you won't go through hard things and that you won't frown and you won't cry and you won't have burdens, but fellowship has a smile because it is full of joy. True fellowship. We must have both of these because we participate with one another as we participate with God. Yes working out our fear and trembling before Him, yearning to be like Him as we walk with fellow believers, wanting them to do the same. Wanting them to do the same. Is this just John's idea? Of course not. Is this my idea? Of course not. This is the idea, the very heart of Christ. I leave you this morning, not with words of me or some theologian, I leave you with the very words of God this morning from Christ Himself, the very word that John has seen and heard and touched. John 15, 1-11. Jesus speaking to John. John heard this message. Now you hear it. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit joy is a fruit of the spirit already you are clean because of the word that i've spoken to you abide in me fellowship and i in you fellowship as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides a fellowship in the vine neither can you unless you abide fellowship in me i am the vine You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, fellowship. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Isolation. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, fellowship. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Participation, proving, knowing, being assured. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be complete. Oh, and that your joy may be full. The very heart of Christ right here on display in 1 John, that you would have fellowship, that your joy and the joy of the Father and the Son and the Spirit would be manifest and overflowing. Amen? Amen. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray.